So the age of reason, um, it should be called the age of reasonable doubt. Uh, the age of reformation was marked by, there, so let, let me just take you through a real quick, if, if there was ever a history lesson, it is this. Imagine a pendulum on a clock, right? Okay, it swings one way. And then it just gradually, as it reaches the edge of one of its swings, it swings the other way. And in the middle, it picks up speed. It's physics, right? So imagine it's, it slows, and then it picks up, and then it slows. That's history. That is absolutely history. You have the Reformation, which we talked about two weeks, which was defining what is salvation and thank goodness for that and now you have that pendulum and it has picked up and it is swinging fast the other way toward the age of enlightenment scientific reason um, scientific thought the age of the individual every man is his own god um, we we are going to get caught into some very very twisted some very very evil um, stuff and much of it is disguised as truth in the church and I know I haven't listened to it but I got to meet this morning with the with the elders as every we do every Sunday morning and and Jack talked a little bit about you know the signs in Israel right that there would be apostasy and that there would be wars and rumors of wars in 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 Israel well listen this is this time period when we look back at history and even in my studies last night, it just it made me think, how close are we? How close are we to the Lord coming back? Our time is not more, it is less. And obviously no one knows the date or the hour, but it's, it's you know, Lord come quick. The age of reason, 1648 to 1789, um, it's really marked by uh, the end of the Reformation toward the French Revolution. So July 14th, not the 4th, 1789, is when the people in Paris stormed the symbolic um, monarchy of the time, which was under Louis XVI, and they stormed the castle, the Bastille, you know this, and, and then there was a quick reaction, you had Napoleon, and I'm not going to get into a whole lot of that this morning. So what I whittled it down, if you, if you remember Reformation, we studied people. Reformation is best studied as people. No Calvin no Luther, no the reformers, okay? Study that. The age of enlightenment or the age of reason or the age of progress is no ideologies, no philosophies. In other words, and the Bible calls it, calls it the age of the times or this, the, and, and what that means and what Paul is referring to in, in the Bible and those is the attitude or the system of the times, the, it's, the, it's the attitude of the people, it's the thought patterns of the world, it's the, it's the sinful, depraved mind of the time. Does that make sense? Man, that could never be applied more accurately than the ages that we're going to study now. So I'll start with a summary. This age of Reformation was marked by the debate among Christians about how we are saved. The age of reason was highlighted by the denial of any supernatural religion. You can't get any dis different. You, you cannot swing any farther. 
Respect for science and human reason replaced Christian faith as the cornerstone of Western culture. Here we sit. Many Protestants met this crisis of faith not by arguments, but by the experience of supernatural conversion. So in other words, Christian reaction to this was it was experiential. You might explain it in a science lab. You might explain it in scientific reasoning, hypothesis, right? This is where we get this, by the way, um, in this time period. Um, You might, you know, scientists might explain it that way. Christians reacted and said, we are going to explain it not by any sort of science or reasoning, but by experience and by emotion. And so you have the Great Awakening. And you have Whitfield, and you have Edwards, and you have some of those. And by the way, I love some of those sermons. Edwards' sermon, man, uh, in the hand, "Man's in the Hands of an Angry God." You've heard this reference before. Well, also the same guy also preached and taught that the millennium would be here in the United States. So we also have to know more big picture. Okay, um, <clears throat> some wacky stuff. Many Protestants met this crisis of faith not by arguments, but by the experience of supernatural conversion. And so faith was less dogma or less doctrine, less what you read, and more about what we feel, what we think. This evangelical Christianity spread rapidly by the power of preaching alone, and many Christians came to see that the support, state support was no longer essential for Christianity, in which it never was. Modern Christians could accept religious freedom. Interesting. Man, you go from reform to that. So let's talk about this. What is the essence of reason, or what is the ideas, what was the systems of the time, right? Well, a lot of them were our forefathers. Just before Ben Franklin died, and I didn't quote all of this, I tried to just catch what was... Um, what was really sort of capturing of this age of reason. Ben wrote this. He said, he responded to an inquiry by President Ezra Stiles of Yale. But by the way, now, let me just talk to you too, just a little bit. Some of the earliest institutions, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, and others were actually denominational universities. And Princeton, or Yale, really Yale now, um, is one of the most liberal institutions of thought um, in not just in the United States, but the world. But here, President Ezra Stiles, who was a deist, writes between him and Ben Franklin, and they say this, Ben writes this, as to Jesus of Nazareth, I have some doubts to his divinity, though it's a question I do not dogmatize upon. In other words, I don't think much on it at all. Having never studied it, and think it needless to busy myself with it now, and this is just before he's dying, a couple weeks, when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. I see no harm, however, and it's being believed if that belief is the good, has the good consequence of making his doctrines more respected and better observed. This is such a good, good example of the Age of Enlightenment. Um, we see this thought pattern in Hinduism. We see this thought pattern in a lot of the Eastern religions, um, in Confucianism, which is, hey, I know, and we actually, by the way, this is a revitalized thought now where we are starting to see, even in science and in curriculum across the nation, where, hey, there, we, we kind of now are seeing that there is a pattern of intelligent design, that there is a designer, there is someone out there who created this order we, you know, we recognize this. Well, so does Hinduism. 
which recognizes, hey, you know what, um, our God is this primary God, but we don't deny the existence of any others, so go ahead and spin your prayer wheels and pray to Allah or pray to Jesus or whoever you might want. We don't deny the existence of that. That was very much the thought pattern of the time, of the Age of Enlightenment. Ben's statement encapsulated the early American spirit and the essence of the Age of Reason, a.k.a. the Age of Enlightenment. Questions of dogma seemed unimportant, hardly worth fretting about. What was immensely more important was behavior, behavior. So the idea shifted from the Reformation, which was man is inherently depraved, which is biblical, right? We know, I'm pretty sure it's stated in scripture that man was continually doing, what was it, it was continually doing evil always. That's depravity. To now, we have debate between philosophers and what the French called the philosophes and how good man was. It's a huge shift. So Ben and others who wrote the Constitution and others really came at it from the angle that man is good. Man is inherently good. He has a desire to do good. Well, we see where that got us. What immensely was more important about the time period, though, was how do we act what is the behavior? Do our beliefs make us more tolerant, more respectful of those who differ with us, more responsive to the true spirit of Jesus? If so, then great, do it. If that hatred of religious bigotry coupled with the devotion to tolerance of all religious opinions has a familiar ring, it is because it's the attitude of age and reason that are not a thing of the past, it's today. Our kids say this. And it's in our music, and it's, hey, it's okay. You do you. You go do what you are happy to do, what makes you happy, what fulfills you. Don't worry about others. Don't put others before yourself. You're happiest when you do you. That is very, very much the age of enlightenment and really gives way to postmodern thought. It's how we live and operate today in the values of the Western world. So I'm excited to unpack this. The spirit of the age of reason was nothing less than an intellectual revolution. A whole new way of looking at God, the world, and oneself. It was birth of secularism, which today is remove spiritual things from how you think about everything. It is think materially, think with your hands on it. Observe, pull apart, dissect. That is secularism. <clears throat> the Middle Ages and the Reformation were centuries of faith in the sense that reason served faith. The mind obeyed authority. I want you to think about that for a second. We as Christians here sit today and operate through filtering decisions, or we ought to anyway, operate filtering decisions and how we walk in a manner worthy of our calling through what is told to us in scripture we sit under christ we sit under his inspired scripture we we operate and hope to fulfill an obedience to the lord who saved us through his written word not in secularism and not in enlightenment to a Catholic, it was church authority. To a Protestant, it was biblical authority. But in either case, it was God's word that was more important than the individual's thoughts. Now we see 
Man's basic concern in this life was his preparation for the next. That's how it was in the Reformation. The age of reason rejected that. Reason and logic replaced faith. Man's primary concern was not the next life, but happiness and fulfillment in this world. And I want to show you this. Okay, and this isn't to rip on, you know, our Constitution or other things. But let me just, let me just tell you this, guys. This, this is stu- stuff I've studied at length. Uh, some of it I was pleased to read and some of it I did not read. I've, I've read Voltaire. I've read Locke, his first and second of Treatise of Government, and I've had to write about how, you know, our Constitution is founded and so forth. And it's founded on this. So <clears throat> it's on this premise, the pursuit of happiness is an enlightened concept Um, the pursuit of property is an enlightened concept Um, these are these are things that are founded with the idea that the individual is more important than the collective Um, and that was very much the idea behind the times so the mind of man rather than faith was the best guide to happiness not emotions or myth or superstition Baron von Holbach, who was a great writer of the time, he was a, a German writer, he wrote this. He said, let us endeavor to disperse those clouds of ignorance. And by the way, I didn't quote him in here, but I should have. Um, one of the great um, psychiatrists of the time was Freud and um, others who wrote that religion is the opiate of the masses. This is the pendulum that has swung the opposite way, which was accepted of the time. Karl Marx and others. I do mention Marx later. The endeavor to disperse those clouds of ignorance, those mists of darkness which impede man on his journey, which prevent his marching through life with a firm and steady step. Let us try to inspire him with respect for his own reason, with an inextinguishable love of truth, so that he may learn to know himself and no longer be duped by an imagination that has been led astray by authority, so that he may learn to base his morals on his own nature, on his own wants, on the real advantage society, so that he may learn to pursue his true happiness by promoting that of others. In short, so that he may become a virtuous and rational being who cannot fail to become happy. You do you. Go on. Be yourself. The Renaissance. Um, You've heard this. This really just means rebirth. This is during the same time period. It really begins in Italy. I don't spend as much time on this, but we get much of our thought, much of our science, much of our art, um, even much of our music uh, from this time period. Rebirth is the classical values of Greek and Roman civilization expressed in literature, politics, and the arts. Uh, Sadly, it wasn't pulled from Christian concepts of that time. It was pulled from secular concepts of the time. Erasmus, for instance, who was great friends with Luther and wrote a series of best-selling satires, writes this. One of his satires was titled Praise of Folly, which ridiculed monasticism and scholasticism by the use of irony, wit, and enlightened common sense. Erasmus, one of Luther's closest followers, captured the classic divide between the Reformation and the Renaissance. Reformers preached the original sin of fallen man, whereas the Renaissance held to the belief that humans were positive by nature. And so was the universe itself. This confidence in man flowered and filled the air with fragrance during the Enlightenment. 
Another route of enlightenment runs through the century of appalling religious conflicts. So there are real reasons the pendulum swings. So the, the end of the Reformation, by the way, saw tons of bloodshed. You saw this. Um, I, read, you, you know, I read some of the writings even of uh, John Fox to you where we saw the systematic capture and killing of Christians. And a lot of that was accusation by other Christians too. Um, you go look at some of it. It was those women who were accused of witchcraft and burned at the stake or drowned um, be- uh, because they were, you know, called heretics and so forth. Um, and so there was a whiplash effect. There was a there was an effect in the Enlightenment that let's just stop this nonsense. Like, how many wars are being fought over religion? Why don't we just stop fighting? and discover the universe, and discover science, and discover art, and so that was very much a part of it. So, and I'll just read further in my notes here, another root of the Enlightenment runs through the century of appalling religious conflicts, the English Civil War, you know, Bloody Mary, you know, the, 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 the absolute vastness of bloodshed that was um, spilled there, the persecution of the French Huguenots, the thousands who were you know, literally drowned and killed, you know, publicly. And then there was the 30-year war in Germany, which was another religious war fought between the haves and have-nots. And, and so people were sick and tired of war. Um, it's not so distant from the mindset that drove the hippies in the 60s. Like, let's, you know, make love, not war. And that's kind of what was uh, pervading in this time period. So people were tired of it, and more people felt only disgust at the burning or drowning of an elderly woman accused of witchcraft or heresy. So it was like, what are we doing? Religious prejudice seemed like a far greater danger than atheism. Wow. Wow. The pendulum has swung big time. So a thirst for tolerance and truths common to mankind spread. Prominent figures. I did, this is, guys, this is not an exhaustive list, and this is a pretty wimpy list, quite frankly, but for the sake of time and um, our time together, I just listed a few. Copernicus, he was a guy at the very beginning of this age period, um, really kind of toward the end of, of Reformation, beginning of Enlightenment, um, insisted that the sun was the was the, that the sun, not the earth, was the center of our universe. He's right. He's right, but it wasn't believed, you know, at the time. Became one of the scientific sort of forefathers. John Kepler, uh, right smack in the middle of the Age of Enlightenment, concluded that the sun emitted a magnetic force that moved the planets in their courses. Well, he's, he's right. Um, Galileo Galilei, of course, Galileo, right smack in the middle, invented a telescope to examine the planets and proved that acceleration of falling bodies is constant. Well, he's right. Okay, the uh, coefficient of gravity, in case you were wondering, is 9.8 meters squared per second. It's constant, whether it's a feather or if it's a piece of lead. Isaac Newton, you know this guy sitting under the tree, is this the one where the apple hit his head, I think? 
I think it did more damage than... But anyways, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, one of the worst books. Oh, my goodness. Um, try reading that. It's just nuts. Uh, proved Laws of Motions were the master principle for a universe such as the law of gravitation or inertia, right? Op op objects in motion tend to stay in motion. Every action has an equal, or I'm sorry, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. These are, this, this, is, this is true. <clears throat> um, and it doesn't, you know, prove or disprove anything in scripture. Locke, I had to put him in here. Um, I've read a ton of his stuff. Locke uh, lived 1632 to 1704. Much of our, our political philosophy is based on Locke. Uh, he wrote the essay concerning, concerning human understanding. He also wrote the first and second treatise of government. I tried to find it and bring it in here this morning. I have, the, I have a copy of the second treatise of government. He is the father of certain inalienable rights. You've heard that before. Um, he's also the father of what is called like a third party democratic or a republic. Um, the idea, he really expands it out. Um, very brilliant man, very, very smart, very, very, um, uh, very excellent writer. Um, really, really easy to read. Anyway, he wrote and emphasized the importance of moral conduct. Uh, he believed that the natural man desires to do good, and he argued for rational proof. Um, <clears throat> Voltaire, I've read only one or two of his works. Candide is the, is the famous one. It's about a man who goes through life and is in search of utopia, right? Utopia, you know what that is. It's the perfect place, the perfect place without, you know, aging and without um, war and it's only peaceful and, man, you want to read a messed up work, read that, um, he, he lived from 1694 to 1774. He was an extremely popular writer. He was the Oprah Winfrey of the time. Um, really a good comparison, really is. Uh, popularized deism. He wrote an estimated 10,000 letters, including histories, plays, pamphlets, essays, and novels. Voltaire received his greatest fame as a relentless critic of established churches, Catholic and Protestant alike. He hated organized religion. Um, he is the father of uh, him, uh, this is a little bit later, but if any of you have read anything Albert Camus wrote, he's the father or sort of the, the originator of existentialism, which is an offshoot of theism, which is, hey, there's probably a creator, there's probably some sort of intelligent designer, um, but he ain't here, because look at how bad things are. Um, and it's a very depressing um, it's, it's an extremely depressing ideology. Um, deism is this. This is where we really see this take, um, take hold of the popular idea of the time. Uh, it's an existence of a supreme being who does not interfere with the world machine. Uh, the god of the deist was sometimes called a watchmaker god. Uh, god created the world, and he wound it up, and he let it run. Um, one of our forefathers, and I, I cannot remember who, and forgive me this, I, I remember reading in one of his journals, though, it was, he described God as the little boy with a magnifying glass on the anthill, and where he's shining the magnifying glass on an ant, and he kind of tortures this one for a little while, and then shifts the focus over to this one, and, 
you know, raises it to get all of them and then brings it down closer to just isolate it and again in one. But this is the, this is the ideology. This is the, this is the, the system of the time, the attitude of the time that shapes much of our, um, our political philosophy. Another one is Denis Diderot or Denis Diderot. Uh, 1713, 1784, he heralded the supremacy of new science. He championed, championed tolerance. Uh, he denounced superstition and expounded the merits of deism. He promoted efforts to stir contempt for Christianity's social failures. He was the best at, at showing the masses, okay, the, you know, the we, the people, the masses, at the failure of Christianity and morality. Look at what this brought you. Look at the wars that this brought you. Look at the poverty that this brought you. Oh, you're hungry? Let's go to the university and learn how to work. You know, that was the idea of the time, um, and a lot has remained. So, modern culture, its art, its education, its politics was freed from formal Christian influence. This is where we see really the final departure of the foundation in culture and in society of the primary moral influence being Christianity. Now the primary moral influence is the individual. It is what do you think is true? What do I think is true for me is right and what you think is true for you is also right, but let's get along. Men made a deliberate attempt to organize a religiously neutral civilization. Well, I'm pretty sure scripture has really clear-cut ideas about neutrality, right? There is no neutrality. There is no lukewarm. This meant that faith had to be confined to the home and the heart. You can have your faith, just have it privately. That was the idea. You can worship, you can sing, you can do these things, but just do it over there. Don't interfere with another group that would also like to do the same. This meant that faith, again, is confined. That is what we find today in modern secular societies. Man, I mean, let's just look at the last 12 years. Um... Some of the movements, some of the, you know, LGBTQ and Black Lives Matter and, I mean, all the stuff that we see that has just been at the forefront and the degradation of morality and thought, um, where does it take its roots? It's, it's right here. <clears throat> well, let's get to the age of uh, progress. Sorry, that's not supposed to be reason there at the top. Progress. We see the pendulum picking up even more speed. Um, the distance from Christianity and the distance from biblical Christianity um, perpetuates. It went from 60 miles an hour now to 100. Uh, 1789, it really begins with the French Revolution um, and to 1914, which was the start of World War I. The French Revolution unleashed new hopes for the common man. Just as, as science raised new questions for traditional Christians, power seemed to be within the reach of the masses. 
For Christianity, this meant that new social unrest was added to the challenge of intellectual doubts. How do we explain away the divisions of culture and the people who were once under authority of the Pope or under authority of the church? Now you see nationalism and denominationalism. So how are Christians supposed to meet the needs of urban masses? How do we do that? These are new problems. Man was simply a product of evolutionary forces. Was that true? Christians were seriously divided over ways to face these problems. Without the traditional support of the state, many Protestants turned to voluntary societies to minister to the poor and the oppressed, as well as to carry the gospel to foreign lands. Let's talk a little bit about the revolutionary fever that was born in this age. Um, obviously, in the 1770s, we saw the American Revolution, and it spread to Europe, and then it spread to Latin America. Um, literally, there was not a place on the globe except Antarctica in the late 1700s that wasn't experiencing some sort of revolution. There, it is worldwide. Um, it was happening everywhere. The Age of Enlightenment created the ferment for change, but the ferment was expressed in words rather than action. Beginning in the 1760s, country after country felt the fever of political unrest in little states like Geneva and in large states like England. Radical politicians challenged the established order. Everywhere, their basic demands were the same. It was this. It was simple. I tried to summarize it as best I could, and it really comes down to this. It was the right to participate in politics, the right to vote, the right to greater freedom of expression. Our First Amendment right? The right to what, what, and what? Freedom of speech, freedom of, starts with a P, press, freedom of petition, and freedom of assembly. Let us get together, let us write, let us talk, um, all of those things. And it was not just in the United States. Everyone wanted it, and why wouldn't you, right? Why wouldn't we? <coughs> Excuse me. So it was the right to participate, the right to vote, the right to greater freedom of expression. The American Revolution in the 1770s inspired radicals in Europe. Um, it also inspired radicals in Latin America. I, shouldn't, I should have included that. The American settlers were viewed by European radicals as true men of the Enlightenment. <clears throat> On the 14th of July, 1789, the enraged Parisian mob stormed the Bastille. The crown at the time was King Louis XVI, who could no longer keep order. He was really a very weak king. Um, he tried to appease him for a time. It worked a couple of years, and then it didn't. The French aristocracy's, tra aristocracy's traditional feudal privileges had been wiped out, and a bold of the declaration of the rights of man and of the citizen had passed into law. The declaration codified most of the demands of the Enlightenment. It declared that natural rights of man this should sound familiar, of liberty, property, security, and the resistance to oppression. And they were sacred and inalienable. In other words, we were born with these rights. They are inherent to man. Just like you were born with appendages, you are also born with these, it was argued. It established men's right to express their opinions freely. It, pro it prohibited arbitrary arrest and protected the rights of the accused. Um, it also declared that France was not the private property of the monarchs, but a sovereign nation owned by its citizens. The leaders of the new revolution soon drove 30 to 40,000 priests out of their native towns into exile or hiding. 
I'm quite grateful that the American Revolution didn't produce this. It did not produce such a backlash against organized religion as it did in France and other places in Europe, England, um, most notably in Russia. If we studied Russian history, you would see a massive oppression of, uh, and still even to this day, of, of organized religion and specifically Christianity. Um, but France did, man. Uh, people who were priests or who worked as clergymen, 30 to 40,000 priests were rounded up and, and f- had to flee and lived in exile or hiding. A new calendar removed all traces of Christianity and ele- elevated the cult of reason. This was immediate. This was in within weeks. This was literally within days and weeks of the French Revolution. Soon, parish churches were converted to temples of reason. And even the Cathedral of Notre Dame enthroned an actress on the high altar as the goddess of reason. The cross was taken down, literally. The cross was taken down and an actress was put up. I don't know who it was. <clears throat> Young girls decked out as reason or, or liberty or nature led processions through towns or to altars erected. This supposed to be to the new religion of revolution. Now we have a new birth of conflict, which was Catholicism versus liberalism. So whenever you have any revolution, you always have some who remain, like even in the United States, you had the loyalists, remember them, who were still loyal to the king, who thought that the monarch was the right way to go, and then you had the revolutions, or I'm sorry, the revolutionaries, um, and we know who won. In England and, and France and other places, you had Catholics uh, versus the liberals. <coughs> The Lord and his apostles had spent no time talking about freedom and personal independence and a man's right to his own opinions. And through the Middle Ages and Reformation, even Augustine's axiom, the liberty comes by grace, freedom comes by grace and not grace by liberty, had been at the bottom of the organization and the imposition of Christian belief. In other words, Reformation time period, the thought process was salvation produces freedom we are no longer enemies of christ right we are saved by our judge jury and executioner we are saved by him we are no longer enemies of him and so what does that produce freedom colossians writes about this against such law there is none right and that's where we get the fruit of the spirit after that but this time period it had turned political and it was no longer religious. It was not grace, uh, liberty by grace, but grace by liberty. In other words, you should be free to have you. It had been at the bottom of the organization of the imposition of Christian belief prior to this time period. To be properly free, men must be in a state of salvation. That's what we would believe. So, th- so throughout these centuries, Christians had little enthusiasm for the idea of man's improper freedom or free in a political sense. It wasn't thought that way. <clears throat> so during the 19th century, the idea that everyone ought to be free as possible was in the air. But how far was possible? In other words, should there be complete anarchy? That was really um, the discussion of the time. It was, should we have some third-party rulers? Should it be a republic? Should it be a monarch? Should it be bicameral? Should it be tricameral? What should it be? Okay, versus should it just be complete anarchy? And you had 
rulers, I didn't put these guys in here, but the two who were really at odds to each other were philosophers named Hobbes and Rousseau. Have you heard of these before? Maybe your memory to your high school and college history is being jogged right now. Well, one believed in this tabula rasa, right? Which we are a blank slate. And through experience, we judge the world through our learned experiences. And, um, and Rousseau was famous for saying, hey, you want a doctor? Have a child. Give me your son. I will produce you a doctor. Does that make sense? That was the thought versus Hobbes, who was like, no, man is inherently good, but um, needs to be ruled because once in a while he gets wayward. I, I just... I get a kick out of some of the philosophy. Once in a while, he gets wayward. <clears throat> uh, Stuart, Stuart Mill, who was a writer at the time, wrote, the liberty of each limited by the liberty of all. That defined the possible. What that means is what is good for the individual is not necessarily good for all. Charles Dickens wrote about that. It was, a, it was the idea called utilitarianism, all right, which was the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Well, that doesn't always work when you have, you know, one guy who wants to shoot a bunch of others, right? What rights do the others have to stop him? And you get, I mean, you get the picture. So liberty meant to have a right to your own opinions, to propagate your own opinions. In other words, to um, get others to follow your own opinions and to behave according to your own opinions, subject to a similar freedom for each member of the community. However, my opinions might hurt your opinions or your opinions might hurt my opinions and so how do we govern that? How do we make sure that that doesn't go too far? Well, in comes democracy. Liberalism is now the thought of the time. And I do want to talk about this at length um, because it has infiltrated the church. Liberalism proposed to overthrow the evils that afflict mankind and in this battle not only refused the assistance of the Roman Catholic Church, but it also insisted that the church had no right to express its views on the morality of public life. Politics is independent of Christian ethics. Roman Catholics are private citizens with all the rights of private citizens, but nothing more. We call this today, we call this political philosophy, which is alive and well, we call it libertarianism. Um, it is the right to not be governed. It is the right to... My morality is not your morality, which is not his morality. We should just still get along. Um, <clears throat> I'll get into this more. I'll unpack this for you. Cultural shocks for evangelical America were on the rise. The first shock arrived with, arrived with The Origin of Species, which was written by Charles Darwin. And let me just pause for a minute and talk about this guy. Um, he was a sadist. He was, uh, he was an evil man. Um, he conducted many of his experiments um, on animals and in places and <clears throat> um, islands because he would not have been able to do it in a lawful, as a lawful abiding citizen. Um, he tortured animals. He put them in cages. He did awful things that PETA would freak out about today and yet one of the greatest supporters of evolution theory. So there's an irony behind all of this, but Darwin... Um, is the father of the survival of fittest. He's the father of evolutionary theory. Um, and it really, really shook the church. It very much shook the church. 
and I'll, write, I'll go through this just a bit. It pub- he published it in 1859 and perhaps one of the most important books of the century. Darwin proposed his evolutionary theory, survival of the fittest, and argued, or natural selection. Um, we know it better as survival of the fittest, right? The fit survive, the, 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 wimp, the wimpy ones die. And it argued that there was no creation at all, but merely an evolution from simple to, to more complex. It did not take long for the church to buy in, guys. Um, it started to fit the times, and this was the idea of liberalism. Society, I'm sorry here, I went to the wrong page. <clears throat> Forgive me. I should be able to follow my own notes, shouldn't I? Uh, The second shock came from a rapidly increasing industrialization and urbanization of American society. No longer were Americans in the small towns. They were in the large cities, and that meant a problem of police, that meant a problem of crime, that meant a problem even of bringing different ideologies in close proximity to each other. Small towns became big cities overnight. Um, L.A. was a great example. It doubled in population. You can go back and look at this, um, but it doubled in population in less than a year. That's insane. Americans migrated from rural cities and immigrants from Germany, Norway, Italy, and other European countries. Most of the new immigrants brought religious opinions alien to the traditional Protestant Americans had viewed their country and their Bibles. So now we are imposed upon instead of imposing Um, instead of having an authority center to your religion like the Pope or like the Bible, now it's, man, how do we deal with all of these other thoughts, all of these things that are assimilating into our country? We've heard it called a melting pot, right? You've heard this before. The third and most direct assault on confidence on the scripture came in a form of higher criticism of the Bible. This was the most subliminal. This was the most... um, Detrimental. This was the sneakiest. This was the, the, the most subtle, but it was the one that was the most harmful. It was liberalism, and it was, um, it was the criticism of the, higher, higher, of the Bible by higher thinkers. As more and more seminary and college professors took advanced degrees in leading European universities, critical views became increasingly dominant in American higher education and eventually in American major denominations, and we still have this. Imagine the jolt to churches when it was suggested that Moses did not author the first five books of the Bible, and that Jesus himself was somewhat deluded visionary, not the Son of God in the flesh. These were some of the, just a few, just a few of the attacks that were revitalized and brought into the church. In 1924, H.L. Mencken, the widely read critic of American ways remarked, Christendom may be defined as briefly or briefly as part of the world in which if any man stands up in public and solemnly swears that he is a Christian, all his auditors will laugh. In other words, that is a thing of the past, guys. Catch up to the times. Like old fuddy-duddy Christian now is laughed at and his morality and his concepts and his fundamentalism is now just a sign of the past. Well, what was the sign of, now, of the time? Liberalism in the church. Liberal theology encroached upon the church with efforts to lead the church into a new world modern of, of modern science, of modern philosophy, and modern history. Harry Emerson Fosdick, a minister in the influential Riverside Church um, in New York City, put it well when he said, the central aim of liberal theology was to make it possible for a man to be both an intelligent modern and a serious Christian. That is so much the thought pattern of today. 
It is, what can I still keep of the world and still be called Christian? I'm pretty sure in 1 John it says, love not what? The world. <laughs> Liberals believe that Christian theology, whoops, I skipped. Um, H, I, I, I got to love this. I got to read this to you. Uh, H. Richard Niebuhr, uh, who was a, a, a German or Austrian, I can't remember where he came from, but expressed the irony of liberal theology as a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. We want all the fun of the world. We want all the, the, the theology and the thought. I don't want to be told about my sin I sure don't want to be told about a God who had to go die on a cross to, you know, save me of my sin, and somehow I'm responsible for his death. That's too serious. That's too weighty. That is the thought pattern in the time of liberal, or at this time, which was the thought pattern of liberalism. The goal of religious liberalism was not dissimilar from political liberalism which was the craving of freedom to discuss, to publish, and to pursue whatever one believes to be true. Liberals believed that Christian theology had to come to terms with modern science if ever hoped to claim and hold the allegiance of intelligent men of the day. In other words, we've got to adjust the church to the time. What is this called today? Come on now. What is the church that goes to adapt itself toward culture? What's this called? It is seeker Friendly. Here you go. This is the birth of it right here. Let's make ourselves more tolerant, more appealing, more like the world itself to get them in and then let's tell them truth. Well, the problem is, is the outward appearance is a lie. The outward is a lie. Let's start with the truth. Let's start with scripture, right? So anyways, liberals believe that Christian theology had to come to terms with the modern science we had to adjust to them. They believed that scripture ought to be interpreted through a modern and enlightened lens that is applied to differently to account for the changing times. In other words, when it says in 1 Corinthians, you know, uh, and talks about, um, you know, homosexuality and adulterers and so forth, will not inherit what? Kingdom of heaven. Well, that was for then. That was true for then. We've evolved now. We are different. We have moved on from that thought. And so we now need to adjust and we need to reinterpret and we need to spiritualize. Can you see the danger here? Scary, scary danger. This is what has infiltrated many evangelical, quote, evangelical churches. You do not have to go very far. Just walk O Street. Um, just walk past a few of the churches. Sad. The two techno technical theological terms that are crucial here, and I want to spend some time a little bit on this. Yeah, we're going to have to go super fast. Imminence and transcendence. This was attacked. These are things that are actual um, uh, attributes of our God. In other words, imminence carries the idea of God dwelling in the world and making it uh, working through nature. In other words, he is the creator and in all things and sustains all things and he is the energy and sustainer of all things. This is a scriptural concept. But it was taken to an extreme by the liberals, which was extreme imminence, which is pantheism, which says that God is in the world and the world is God. In every little flower and every little bumblebee, there is a God. That's how far it went. What about transcendence? Well, the liberals 
perverted that as well. Transcendence applies to the reality of God as apart from the world. In other words, and I gave this example when I taught through James, because James hits on this idea very much, which is similar to, you know, this beautiful, pure sunlight that is shining on a heap of trash. Does that trash in any way change the properties of the sunlight? It, it does not, right? It is still pure. It is still beautiful. That is the way that God is. He is in, in, in God is no sin, okay? There is no error. He is pure. He is holy. He is undefiled, okay? <clears throat> well, liberals found a way to pervert that as well. Extreme transcendence is found in the faith of the, for the deists or of the deists for whom God is as separate from the world as a watchmaker is from the watch. In other words, he is so transcendent that he has no care for the world. He has no care for you and me. Our suffers, uh, you know, our trials, our tribulations is instituted by a God who is there, but he just doesn't care. What a sad thought, man. Liberals would also say and, and, and call, and I, this is quote too, uh, liberals, would call, liberals would say some call it evolution, others call it God. And what the idea here is that um, God caused the evolution. God caused things to go from simple to complex, and that is just the way he works. Sorry, it's not true. I mean, we all know that. Six literal days of creation. We have the creatures that were created today, 2023. Instead of suddenly breaking through the clouds to create the world, liberals argued that God had been working for ages throughout natural law, slowly building the universe into what it is today. Guys, this thought pattern, it, it, just, it makes me want to stand here and, and pound the podium. This thought pattern is pervasive. This thought pattern is behind much of what we sit through on our televisions, our radios, and if we're not careful and, and if we are not grounded and steadfast in what we know scripturally, then what can influence us, right? What, what things creep in? Things like this, romanticism, early 19th century movement emphasizing Christian experience, which is a way of looking at life through feelings and emotions. Romanticism insisted that a man was not a cog in human society. He was a vibrant parcher of nature, revolting against society's rules and humans and re or, I'm sorry human reason and traditional authority romanticism stressed the individual his spirit and his longing for the ultimate experience hey enjoy and love and your emotions and follow your heart and that was romanticism man i'm pretty sure i read in scripture that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful right we have to be careful of this don't listen to your heart. Don't worship as you feel. Don't worship as your emotions take you. Man, understand scripture and worship according to how God has prescribed. It gives way to this. Socialism. Karl Marx lived from 1818 to 1883. He was born in the Rhineland of Jewish German parents who had been converted to Christianity. Imagine that. Did you know that? He was brought up in a Christian home. Obtained a doctor's degree after studying the ideas of philosopher George Hegel. They're together still, again. 
Became friends, without Friedrich, uh, became friends with Friedrich Engels also, who were eventually expelled by the German authorities, and they went to live in Brussels, Belgium. January 1848, Marx and Engels published their famous Communist Manifesto. It preached a new form of socialism based on violence and urged warfare between the classes and repudiated Christianity and morality. They hated Christian thought. Another one of Marx's works, Das Kapital, was one of the most influential books of modern times in the 20th century. And nearly half of the world at that point was, argue, was organized on the basis of its teachings. You had um, Eastern Europe, you had all of Russia, you had much of what are called the stands now, Afghanistan, Turkestan, Uzbekistan, Kirkmenistan, Tajikistan, all those, all under communist rule. It did not take long. It did not take long to go from reformation to enlightenment and reason and thought. And so my warning and how I want to end this class is it's not going to take long for things to come about that are foretold in scripture, the apostasy, the evil, the degradation of morality, the degradation and, and opposition to Christian thought. It's here. It's alive and well. But thank the Lord for his written word, for the teaching and systematic teaching and exposition and exegetical hermeneutical approach to the teaching of his word, which is also still alive and well. Brian. I think you can summarize history of Judges 21-25. Yeah. Everyone did what was right in his own heart. Yeah, and Paul um, wrote again in two of his epistles that each one would go his own way. And we're seeing that. Any other questions or comments? Well, if you want, you can read about the final, the two ages, the age of ideas or the age of ideology. You can, if you want, um, get that book for yourself. It's a great read. It really is. It's kind of, if you're a nut like I am on some of this stuff, um, enjoy it. But uh, let's close in prayer. I, I've enjoyed teaching this class. I know I've covered some things controversial, but I think it's important for us. Um, I, I know it's important for us that we have an idea of what happened from where Scripture ended in Revelation to today. And, um, and it's good to know where, how it was preserved and who preserved it and that what we do here is not just a simulation of what it was, but it's an actual... Um, prescribed in God's word. So we'll close in prayer. Our God and our Father, I do thank you for uh, who and what you are. Thank you, Lord, for your steadfastness, your immutability. Although we see the crumbling and changing of our times, you never change. And you knew what would be today. You even declared you sent your son at the right time, the right person, the right man who is also fully God. And so we take great confidence in that. Help us to be unshaken in our faith. Help us not to waver in our belief and stand strong on what is true and factual, which is only in your written word. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit who illuminates and teaches us your word and help us to be great evangelical Christians who are bold and 
proclaiming your word and your truth through the only weapon we had, which is, have, which is scripture. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.